Mrs. Fortress on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, and Giovanni. Welcome everyone to Fortress on a Hill, a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, with me is my co-host, uh, Kagan. Hey man, how you doing? Doing well. And we are, uh, we are here to talk with authors and journalists, Suzanne Gordon and Steve Early. They join us today to discuss their new book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Steve and Suzanne, how are you both doing this evening? Very good. And thank you for having us. Yeah, we're so excited to be with you again. It's great. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a while since we uh, we talked about your your earlier book, Wounds of War. So, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to get in with with both of you a little bit about kind of the origins of of this book, and especially about the you know that this book really kind of carves out some new terrain vis a vis the physical injuries, mental, emotional, psychological injuries, and and creating those different nexus between them, um, especially when it comes to things like, you know, environmental stuff, Agent Orange, burn pits, things like that. Um, will you share with the listeners about how you guys came to, to write this book and what was the, what was the big, um, the big targets you had as far as subjects and, and, uh, things you wanted to cover? Well, both of us, the, there are three authors of the book, and one of the uh, the authors is a a younger journalist, um, Jasper Craven, who talks about military stuff in VA. And none of us are veterans. Um, Steve and I think of us as selves, I think, as veterans of various anti-war movements. I mean, my interest in American foreign policy started when I went to school in 1963 during the Vietnam War. And, you know, I suddenly became very aware of American military and foreign policy and have been thinking about these issues ever since. I, I'm also a healthcare journalist and researcher and have spent years and years, really decades, researching healthcare systems and and experiences of patients in private sector healthcare and concerned about our profit-driven system and in the mid, you know, the aughts, I guess, I began to look at the VA system and did some work in some VAs and was finally decided I wanted to write a book about VA healthcare system, the Veterans Health Administration, which is the largest um, healthcare system in the country, the only publicly funded, fully integrated system. Um, and I, so I spent, you know, five or six years researching that and, and going into VA facilities with veterans and who were amazingly generous, you know, just, just, I don't, you know, I, I went with veterans to psychiatric appointments and primary care appointments and oncology appointments and end of life discussions. It was really extraordinary. And, you know, I went, I went around the country and you know, so I became very, very aware of the veteran experience and the kinds of wounds of war that they had. And also the, the wounds that I describe and that I focus on and that we focus on the book isn't just people who go into combat. 
because, you know, the military, as my friend Rick Weidman, who was a Vietnam veteran and legislative director for a, for a long time of the vet- Vietnam Veterans of America, says the military is a collection of very dangerous occupations, you know, no matter where you are. And one of the things I'm always trying to remind people of is, you know, they think veteran injuries, combat, well, you don't have to leave the continental United States to to get PTSD or military sexual trauma or suffer from all kinds of, you know, back, neck, shoulder injuries, et cetera. So I, I think, Steve, I kind of corralled into, into, you know, I mean, I, I'm Steve's my husband, so I would talk about veterans. I helped found a group called the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute. So, you know, my life is pretty much 24-7 veteran stuff, and, and it just seemed logical to look beyond the healthcare issues and look at what military service really involves, what sacrifices are kind of necessary and unpreventable and what what the military is like as an employer, and then look at the way our society constructs, um, you know, the veteran experience. What are the promises we make and what are the promises we keep and mostly don't keep? Um, and, and I think Steve probably could add a lot because he has a, a slightly different, you know, coming to it from a different, different perspective. Yeah, though I've been a freelance journalist uh, full time for the last few years and done some previous books about uh, labor issues, uh, my background's uh, been primarily in the labor movement and uh, was a longtime national organizer and rep for the Communication Workers of America. And uh, before that, in the 1970s, worked with labor organizations. Uh, uh, including coal miners and steel workers and teamsters. So as long as go as long ago as fifty years, uh, you know, what I noticed when I got involved in, in union stuff was the really important role that military veterans played in particular unions and their, their struggles. Um the first union I worked for, the United Iron Workers uh, back in the early seventies, was a scene of an incredibly important uh, history making rank and file struggle for union democracy and reform. A group called the Minus for Democracy ousted the corrupt, entrenched, murderous old leadership of the coal miners union. And uh, that reform was led by a guy named Arnold Miller, who was a survivor of the D-Day invasion and a wounded World War II veteran, a Korean War veteran by the name of Harry Patrick, uh, a campaign to uh, transform the union was led by Vietnam era veterans, came back, went to work as coal miners. Uh, one of them, Cecil Roberts, who I worked with back then, is still the national president of the UMW. And so I was impressed from my first involvement in labor struggles, uh, how what a catalytic and critical role military veterans can bring, because they bring leadership and ability to, to, to work as part of a team, to take risks, to stand up for their rights, and uh, help their uh, fellow union members sometimes roll back, uh, fight back. And uh, in my own work over the years with the, uh, in the telecommunications industry in the Northeast, I worked on a number of strikes and tough bargaining situations, contract campaigns with members of both the communication workers and the 
International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. And again, same experience. Uh, you know, some of the people who were the most effective picket captains, the most effective organizers of mobile picketing, you know, the, the, the best strike leaders were people, uh, you know, who were from backgrounds, uh, went into the military, got out of the military, went to work in a phone company. And um, so, you know, what I uh, contributed to the book was, uh, you know, some of the sections that deal with the that's why the labor movement uh, should make greater use of the one million men and women served in the military and, and are, are now members of uh, a wide range of unions. And uh, we could talk more about unions that are doing a good job of deploying them uh, at home and the ones that need to do a better job. I would, uh, I would imagine that the synergy between union members and veteran union members, um, in terms of understanding this is similar struggles, you know, dealing with, dealing with unsafe workplaces, dealing with, um, not being paid enough or having the work you're doing, not being counted as pay. Um, and we talked about this just a little bit offline, but that the, the, the U S military, it is in fact illegal. It is against federal law for military members to participate in any kind of union, anything that even seems like a union. There's all kinds of, you know, official organizations, you know, the association of the United States army comes to mind of different things you can join and they do advocate to a certain extent on benefits and work conditions and things like that. But it's nothing at all compared to genuine die in the wool union membership where people really actually get to, to push back on that. And. Um, and, and especially, you know, with the, with the military, you know, that the, um, it's long, long known alongside, you know, horrible corporate interests, as far as how much they're making their people work for how little wages. Um, and you see that that dichotomy play out on a, on a bigger scale because of that, you know, like here in Portland, people fighting, trying to get. Uh, higher wages. I think Amazon here is is paying eighteen dollars an hour or something like that. Start starting out, and it's for some people it's still not enough. It's still not enough to to take care of their basic needs. And it's also come out a lot more in the last few years that the military does not do as much intrinsic good for their members and their families that they could um, in terms of you know different aspects of of uh, being in service. So, you know, I, I don't, I, to me, and then not just as a veteran, but as a human being, it's really shameful that there are soldiers that have to rely on food stamps, <laughs> that there are situations where, you know, usually the, the soldier, the service member, you know, their doctor is easily accessible or, or hopefully not too inaccessible, but for the spouse, for kids, uh, you know, the military health system has shrunk however much in the last, what, five to 10 years, um, horrible, horrible cuts, uh, cuts going on. Um, but we're supposed to, we're supposed to buy in those, you know, those things are just little inconveniences. Those are little things that we just need to accept. We have to accept that spouses are going to move long distances and have horrible times getting new jobs, which is something that, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not a new problem. And yet uncle Sam still does almost nothing. 
um, and to, to switch gears a little bit on, on that topic, that the about safety conscious, that the military is exempt from so many different regulations and rules that normal businesses that are, or bigger corporations would have the EPA up their asses. And yet for the military, it's not so much a thing, but that also extends over to families and children that, you know, you know, what's happening, what, what has been happening the last couple of years in Red Hill and in Hawaii, uh, what's been happening at Camp Lejeune over the last 50 years. I'm fairly certain that the water that I drank at Fort Lewis was contaminated in one way or another. And that would, uh, possibly my, my, my then spouse and my young son was living near there that they may have been drinking the same stuff. These are all horrible, horrible things that the military just kind of shusses away and we're, we're supposed to be okay with it. And I, I have my own moral reasons for saying, I don't think people should serve in the military anymore, but if they're going to serve, these things should be there. These things should be, you know, it, it should be thought of that way. How shameful is it that people's kids can get poisoned by living on a military post? Well, one, one bright spot is that, uh, as a result of, a. Uh, kind of a policy shift uh, from the Justice Department under Biden earlier this year, uh, really for the first time uh, since the 1970s, there's uh, been a serious effort to uh, organize, unionize uh, members of the National Guard in at least two states, Texas and Connecticut. Uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the Pentagon reacted rather negatively to the efforts uh, as part of the GI anti-war movement in the late 60s or 70s to form an American serviceman union. Uh, and uh, despite uh, some brave efforts by its organizers, uh, that way activity was quickly criminalized. And uh, so active duty... Uh, folks, as you note, have, have been denied an organizational voice. and uh, But in these two National Guard organizing campaigns, particularly the one in Texas, uh, you could see what having a union-style organization or just a more informal soldiers association to address bad working conditions and uh, benefits being taken away and, and low pay, uh, you know, the Texas National Guard organizing that my union, the CWA, is is backing through the Texas State Employees Union was triggered by Governor Abbott for as a political stunt, sending, you know, 10,000 Texas Guard members to uh, the border. And, uh, you know, a thousand applied for uh, hardship waivers. Those were denied. You know, he had tens of millions of dollars to spend on this stunt to help get himself reelected. But at the same time, he was imposing this unexpected duty on uh, many guard members and their families. He was cutting tuition assistance. One of the main reasons that, uh, you know, one of the benefits uh, that, that people join the National Guard, Texas and other states. So there's some terrific people leading that effort. Uh, they're now called the Military Caucus of the Texas State Employees Union. You can check out what they're doing on the TSEU website. And, uh, you know, they, they can't collectively bargain. They're not going to strike. Regular public employees aren't allowed to do that in Texas, but now they have a voice. They're going to be very active in legislative political affairs, lobbying state legislature and putting pressure on a Republican governor who just, you know, wanted to use them as political props with really adverse impact on their 
on their regular jobs and on their National Guard service. I mean, they want to be serving people, not, you know, acting as mall cops on the on the border. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the the big problems that I see is that we have this view of military service as service and sacrifice, you know, like you guys signed up to die for your country, right? Well, I mean, obviously there's, that's true, right? I mean, the military isn't the Peace Corps or a meritor. It's about killing people and getting killed, right? I mean, you're, which is another thing that we stress in the book, you know, I mean, I'm very taken with the work of a famous Canadian sociologist called Irving Goffman, who developed this idea of total institutions, you know, institutions that totally control every single thing about you. And the military is the quintessential total institution. And military indoctrination is all about teaching people to um, forget what they were taught from the time they were born, that you shouldn't kill people, right? And also, you know, um, and also to obey orders, right? Um, and I think that um, the the thing that we also forget is that it's a job. I mean, you know, being in a, the military is like a job, and um, and it it should have rights. You know, it should have the same rights as uh, as other jobs, but also, you know. The sacrifices that people make should be reasonable, right? I mean, we shouldn't be sending people to unnecessary military adventures and putting them in harm's way. But also, we shouldn't be subjugating people, I mean, to moldy housing, you know, or, as you say, you know, moving people around so that they can't have a dual income, which you need, particularly given how poorly the military is, is paid. Um, I mean, 126 military bases in the U.S. are contaminated with, perf- I can't even pronounce it, you know, perfluorinated carbons. And, and um, you know, people are surrounded by predatory lenders. I mean, we interviewed a guy in, in the Navy, Keegan, Keegan, you would know about this, who, you know, um, a guy in San Diego, Jose Cavallero, who basically talked about, you know, you, you, these 18-year-old kids getting on getting these bonuses and then the navy lets these car dealers come in to the ship and they sign on to you know buy these expensive cars and then they can't pay them off and then the you know then they are told well you're never going to be able to pay this off and baby you better re-up you know um i mean in iraq the scandal of this right is just unbelievable i mean you hire a contractor who has Kellogg Brown and Root, known in Vietnam as burn and loot or bribe and lie, you know? And um, and they use a 15th century method of, you know, just burning everything and you're all breathing this stuff in, even people who aren't in combat. I mean, the 3M earplugs, you know, that, that, that you all were given it. And they didn't, the Pentagon somehow couldn't be bothered to figure out, like, where did they work? And people have tinnitus and hearing loss, and they thought they wouldn't using these things. I mean, one could just kind of go on and on. And, you know, I think, I mean, particularly for women, 
the the misogyny in the military that the military refuses to deal with um and the the military sexual trauma and the way that people are penalized you know with bad paper discharges if they report a commander um so i mean i think these are these are preventable harms you know what i mean they are preventable harms and we as an american public should know more about them we should know more about what military service involves because if you don't know what military service involves then you don't understand the veterans experience because it begins in the military and you know henry you mentioned the military health system and we we're very focused on va privatization they have privatized the military health system, shrunk it. You know, this is the, and in spite of vast every year increases in the budget for the military, and they can't afford the military health system. Like, excuse me, really? I had made a note for, in, in terms of this discussion, that the, something I think that advocates should begin talking about is that when the when the NDA comes around for a given year, when we have our, our big budget that comes around on a on a in a given fiscal year, let's say, you know, recently we've had we've we've gotten to I think it's over eight hundred billion now. So if eight hundred billion dollars is our military budget, our our reactive or preventative, however you know, however we're deciding to define defense on that particular day. If, if we're willing to put out a hundred billion, billion dollars that when that bill goes along, I think that it should be mandated that there should be a dollar for preventative things, say the VHA, the VBA, military health service, et cetera. Um, and that goes with that one budget because for so long, we have decided that these things are going to be entirely separate, not only because. The, the the Department of Defense doesn't acknowledge things like like moral injury, but it allows them to get war, you know, to start wars, to start conflicts that lots of people are hurt in, not just Americans, but people all over the world. And then as far as the back end costs, those are shipped off to someone else, a different president, a different administration. Yeah. And it, it then it becomes it becomes, you know, onto onto people like you guys to say this is really what's actually happening bring it down from the from the abstract down to the concrete this is what veterans are actually having having to live for because you know something danny danny says a lot is about that we have to make less veterans well okay i'm absolutely on, on board with that um in our goal in our journey in terms of making less veterans that we're, I, we're, I feel we're more morally and ethically bound to make service better for people, to make it easier to that. It, like you said, like you said, Suzanne, that these are preventable harms. These are things that we actually can change. But part of it is we don't have the mindset for change. It's usually it takes so long to make small changes. And then a lot of times the bigger ones come with things like the Mission Act stuff that is says it's ostensibly to help to give veterans more choice and instead it is a way to help them less and to lessen the ability of the entirety of the va to be able to help more veterans um i say that 
you know, I, I want to get at, that out there because it is, it's, we, we've been, have, we've been forced to accept this dichotomy about where the money comes from and why we don't have it. You know, people, people like to use the, you know, the meme of the homeless veteran, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to help. We're not going to help anybody overseas until every homeless veteran has a place to stay. Um, we need to latch on some to the concrete and we need to be front loading our expenses that way. And people, and when that day, when, and if that day actually comes that people are going to have, well, this is okay. So you're saying that it's not $2 that the cost of this is not $2, but it's actually three and a half or three, you know, however many trillion, whatever it is. And let the bean counter stew over that for a while. You know that they have to. It's, that it's not a. It's not a choice anymore. The thing that I like to see right now is the fact that a lot of the armed forces are missing their recruiting goals, even though we're in a recession. And I find that really interesting because it just goes to show you that like young kids get it. Like they don't want to go into the military where they can deal with all this stuff because the information is getting out there. Like more it kids oh, yeah. are listening and really like, oh crap, I don't want to have that happen to me. Like. So it does make me feel good that like the Gen Z kids, like they get it. They're like, nope, I don't want to be a part of it. Even the people that feel like you know, that there is an economic draft and like even those kids are still like, nope, it's not worth it because they're starting to understand and listen to the people who've gone through it and be like, oh, okay, I don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is that I'm particularly incensed about is this whole, you know, the bad paper discharges. And, and I think, you know, if you ask most Americans, most Americans know like zero, I would say about, you know, military service or the VA or, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, always give talks and I, you know, did you know, did you know, did you know, and mostly they don't. And most Americans think every veteran is covered by the VA. They have no idea that you know, you, your health care depends on your dis or your, your education benefits that we promise depends on discharge status. They don't know anything about, I mean, I think they've probably heard about an honorable discharge and a dishonorable discharge. I mean, this, this category so extraordinary is, you know, other than honorable discharge, right? And, and where you're, I mean, you, you can't use the term punitive discharge because, because that's like a term of art, right? But these punishing discharges where people are punished because they have PTSD or traumatic brain injury or whatever, and they, you know, they they came to formation twice late or they weaken or whatever, or they reported military sexual trauma, you know, and then they and then they get kicked out of the military with this discharge that makes it impossible for for them to have, um, um, you know. Healthcare and benefits, and Danny really explained to me how the military uses those, you know, to kind of get rid of what he calls problem children, because it doesn't want to take the time to go through the medical discharge process, the lengthy medical discharge process, where they then these commanders or whatever would have, you know, like non-deployable people on their books, which counts against them, et cetera, and. I mean, I just think that's absolutely outrageous. And how many, I mean, I can't, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I did you know about that? End up, I mean, did they tell you about that? 
Did you register it when you were 18? And, you know, I mean, because I bet you that's like a pretty big surprise to people. And then, you know, the, the, the other thing that I think is so fascinating is how the VSOs won't let, you know, AMVETS, the Legion, the DAV, um, um, a VFW, you can't be a member if you have one of these bad paper discharges, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, and they're, so they're not on board for changing this because they have the same mindset, right? And we have 600,000 people, right, who have these discharges and can't get help from the VA, can't get the benefits that were promised them. And the American people are like stunned. People are stunned when we tell them that. Um, yeah, I, my friend was a JAG officer in the Marine Corps, and a lot of what he did were fighting for people's discharges. And the thing that he told me was the most frustrating is the fact that you can do everything right and then have one mistake. And then the, it's up to the commander, basically, like what your discharge is. And if they just want to make an example of somebody, they can't. And then boom, there go all your benefits. Right. And I just found that like so frustrating as someone who works like my job right now is I work with homeless veterans who have, who are, uh, who don't have honorable discharges. So like they didn't have enough time in or they got it, they got, discharged because they smoked pot once you know and so it's 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 frustrating because like if, if they were able to get seen by the va i could help them so much better they would have so much better coordination of care there would be so much more it would just like their life would be so much easier if they were able to access these benefits but they can't and there there is a way you know to try to upgrade your discharge but that takes forever and it's a long shot. Like most most people don't get it. Yeah, no. And and the VA could also let them in. And there have been efforts. I mean, uh, we have a great group in San Francisco called Swords to Plowshares. Yeah. And then there's the Harvard uh, Veterans Clinic. And they put a petition in 2015, like under Obama, right? And they, because the VA could let these people in. I mean, it's a long in the weeds discussion about you know, what was intended in 1944 with the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, you know, we don't want to spend, or Congress doesn't want to spend the itsy-bitsy bit of money that it would take to bring 600,000 people, you know, into the VA for what we promised them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I think that, I mean, it was very interesting to talk to Michael Blecker, who is the executive director of sorts. And he basically said, you know, he did not go to the traditional VSOs to get help with this because he thought they would actually fight against it. And I mean, I've had conversations. I mean, sometimes I feel like civilians are, are more supportive of veterans than veterans are supportive of each other. <laughs> I've had conversations with vets about people with bad paper charges and they'll like, well, those guys, they made bad choices. And you say, well, you know, he had a traumatic brain injury. So like he really doesn't, I mean, have the cognitive ability to make a good choice. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. I didn't get an honorable discharge. So 
I mean, it, I mean, you know, I think there's also a lot of people who would be supportive of that, but people, you know, it, it's a question of of money, spending money, and we're willing to spend it on defective airplanes, you know, that don't work, but we're not willing to spend it on treatments that we know will work for people that have served us. It's it's just infuriating, you know. It it kind of points out a <clears throat> really tragic contradiction of the veterans' healthcare system. Um, you know, one of the things that impressed me about it, learning more about it uh, for the book, <clears throat> how it functions basically as a federal workers' compensation system, and it's a uh, two thirds of the uh, the people uh, who are VA patients you know, have a disability rating. That's how service related condition they've been able to prove, and so they're getting comprehensive healthcare coverage, um, they're in much better shape than a construction worker or a coal miner gets injured on the job, gets an occupational disease. You know, our state worker comp systems are not great. Uh, employers have private insurers that fight the claims. Uh, you know, the, the disability benefits in many states are pretty paltry. And, you know, people are really wrapped up. They lose their job, they lose their regular job-based health insurance, even if they case and get some treatment for their injury or their illness. Uh, you know, in the VA, once people are in with a service-related condition, they have comprehensive coverage. But, you know, the one fly in the ointment is the military's treatment of the performance issues that can lead to disqualifying discharges. I mean, there's no way that a a worker or a coal miner, you know, if, if they get fired for punching a supervisor or smoking a joint on the job or going out on a wildcat strike, you know, if a year later their employment has been terminated and they develop stosis or black lung disease, they can still apply for disability benefits. Their ability is not terminated as a result of their, you know, their alleged misconduct on the job and their past termination by a, a private sector employer. So that's a, a big uh, uh, hole in the, the uh, social safety net that, you know, benefits uh, half of the, the 19 million Americans who've served in the military and we're getting the benefit of, of, of VA services. And of course, we argue in the book, uh, and there's lots of ways that uh, they VA coverage could and should be expanded to other veterans, veterans' families, and, and people in the community who need this uh, network of public hospitals and clinics, particularly in underserved areas of the country. I, I was I was really uplifted to see your guys's commentary about um, getting benefits to family family members of veterans. That that we we have to start looking at it. Um, that the, you know, the family is included in this, in this veteran circle that we put, we put veterans into because we bring it all home. We bring it and we essentially give it to our, our relatives. Um, but no, I think that, I think that that's a really amazing idea. And especially then that, um, one of the biggest issues, you know, is, is facing Americans and certainly facing veterans that aren't able to get care from the VA. It's just simple health care, losing your health care from, you know, especially if it was a job that you had for for a long time and how that that one thing can send make someone spiral, you know, have increasing depression, have other health issues, you know, 
potentially um, contemplate suicide, it you know they need to understand that how how much these changes really matter to the few people that are able to get them. Now, I, I think that I think that all veterans should be able to access it. To me, it seems like a uh, an uh, something that would fall under equal protection of the law. That you how is it that you can prove that this one person's things you know misconduct or whatever whatever phrase that it isn't driven by injuries that they received from the military how can they you know rubber stamp it as denied right out the gate simply on that basis you know well and and i mean i think that we we are long time advocates of, of a national health system i mean i personally think it should be va for all as opposed to medicare for all because the VA is a really great model. But, you know, the reality is that, um, I mean, you, you see it in the, you know, because so much of military, since we did away with the draft, it's become sort of a family business, you know, dad was in Vietnam, I'm gonna, whatever. And I mean, a lot of the, the folks that I've interviewed and, and veterans I've talked to had spent time with, you know, their father was in, you know, no, grandpa was in World War II and came back, you know, never quite the same. And then, you know, was in Vietnam and came back and, well, they had a name for the never quite the same, you know, after a while, PTSD. And then they join up and, they, and you know, this is a mental, mental illness and, and, the, and the wounds of war is kind of a gift that keeps on giving, you know, and, um, and then you add football into it and like, I'm in with like CTE, you know, and, and it's really like a setup, I think. And, um, and, and as my friend, Harold Cutler, who was the chief of mental health for the VA for a long time said, you know, I mean, if some, if Joe has PTSD and he's married and he has kids, I mean, if Joe doesn't just experience a PTSD or tinnitus or whatever, you know, any of these problems, not to mention the burn pits and the birth defects and the cancers that you're passing along to your progeny, but it's ridiculous. And we should have both the VA. I mean, I personally think that the national health system a la VA, the VA should be part of that. And, you know, vets could, could go to the VA and their families could, could also go to the VA or they could go, you know, to get healthcare in this national system to which everyone would have access like every other country, every other industrialized country. I mean, I think that veterans should be approached by healthcare reform activists to join in, um, in the struggle for national healthcare, and they should also really be joining the struggle for ending privatization. War vets should be of the VA um, which, because we, you need a specific healthcare system to, to deal with the very specific illnesses and conditions that veterans have. I mean, one of the things I learned writing with war was veterans have very specific healthcare problems, mental and physical and social, right? And you need a system that deals with that as long as we have, as long as we're producing veterans, right? And obviously it would be great if we weren't. You have to have a healthcare system and a 
well, a social determinants of health system that deals with the very specific problems that veterans have. Um, and I think that that system should fit into a larger system to which we all have access. And every vet, every vet, no matter what their age, no matter where they have a proven service-connected disability, should be given that health care because we can afford it. I mean, one of the things that really, really impressed me in writing Wounds of War in this book as well is the socialization in the military of embracing the suck, you know, of, of not being health, not, I mean, even when you have the military health system, not using it, because like, you know, as the Marines say, pain is weakness leaving the body. I mean, really like, you know, and, and, and I have talked to people who had horrendous injuries and didn't, you know, there's no paper trail because you're socialized not to go to the doctor. I mean, unless I was told, you know, unless a, a broken bone that's like sticking out of, you know, out of skin and bleeding or, you know, you're, you're told not to get help. And so you socialize people into this, into this anti-health CPM behavior. And then they don't have a paper trail. They can't prove the service-connected disability. And then they can't get into the VA. And if that is the frame, then you absolutely must give these people access to, to healthcare without demanding some kind of paper trail that proves, you know, that they got this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I would think of it just as a, just as a, a simple, a simple, the, 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 um, the best use of extending the system that way that it is that in terms of, you know, as we understand more about how multi-generational trauma and combat get mixed together, that in that paradigm, you would be ensuring that, you know, not just the veteran who goes to combat, but the veteran who doesn't go to combat and the family members and the kids and in that way, but that the, that whole sphere of influence that a veteran has at least they're protected right. healthcare wise. And that's something that they, they could go forward with that. Like, for, you know, I would think like my sons should have like VA coverage, at least for like the mental health aspect because right. they're, because their dad has issues that way that it just makes, it, it just makes logical sense. But the, I think the bigger, biggest problem we're going to run into is that people, people don't expand their idea that big enough because they, they they want people you know as americans we're supposed to you know you, what you were just talking about suzanne we're supposed to suck it up we're not supposed to you know and 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 that by asking we're somehow relinquishing you know that john wayne cowboy bullshit um when in reality we're just trying to deal with the aftermath of war in all the different forms that it ends up taking and all the people that it ends up you know dealing with I mean, there's some pretty interesting um, models, you know, for that kind of expansion. I mean, we argue in the book that every, I mean, let's begin by covering every veteran, okay? I mean, let's get rid of any means tests for income or service connection or discharge status, you know. I mean, I don't know. Okay, you want to, I'm willing to compromise on dishonorable discharges 
maybe because there's so few of those people, right? But everybody else is in, nobody's out. Well, there, okay? And then once we've got that, then I think we should expand it to, to family members. I mean, I think we should expand it to VA caregivers. There's 3,000 hmm. uh, caregivers who, who have devoted their lives to helping vets. And 100,000 of them are vets. Okay, fine. Not every one of those 100,000 vets has, you know, can can make it to the eligibility made. But, you know, I have friends who are, you know, primary care docs and psychologists and psychiatrists. These amazing models of care, they can't get care in the system they've created. And they have to go out into the private sector where the care is fragmented and disorganized and they can't get the kind of models of care that they've pioneered in saying 200, that would be 200,000 people. So, you know, bring all vets in, VA caregivers, let's start there, then expand to family members. And, you know, you can even expand to communities. I mean, in White River, Vermont, um, uh, at the VA, they've led in because they have such a problem with mental health care in the area, they have let civilian sector patients come into the VA to get care. That's very, yes. you know, doable. Um, and they're they're arguing now, you know, the powers that be in Washington, oh, we can't really afford the VA healthcare system. There's a declining veteran population. Some are underutilized, blah, blah, blah. Well, you could... You know, oh, you could bring in increased utilization by bringing in vets who are currently in prior, you know, in these priority groups, difficult for them to get care. You could bring their family members in. You could bring <laughs> community members in because in all of these places where they want to shut down VAs, there are terrible uh, shortages of health care, particularly in rural America. And the VA could really use its fourth mission. Uh, it's, which is something that almost nobody knows about, which is to serve as a backup for the broader healthcare system in times of regional, national, or local emergency. It could expand its fourth mission and bring folks like family members in, community members in. It's very doable. It's very cost-effective because the VA is a cost-effective system because it's mission, not profit-driven. I think it's interesting. There's um, So there's housing program called HUD VASH. It's the VA supported housing group grant. And they have recently changed the criteria within the last couple of years to let more people in that, that have bad paper dish or uh, at least uh, general under honorable yeah. conditions. And also uh, length of service has been decreased drastically. So now basically anybody who made it past two <laughs> weeks can be, can get enrolled in VASH. And I think that that's going to be a good crack in the way of letting right. people open it because then, because that's the next question of like, there's always this continuity of care with veterans. So if we're going to let these people who have these other than honorable or general under honorable conditions uh, folks in or folks who didn't serve the full 180 days, if we're going to let them in, we might as well let them have VA healthcare. So I know that's like, there are people out there that are trying to push that. I, I, it's, it's good because now we're seeing that there's, there's a balance. Like there are folks out there who are fighting for this because they realize we're in a need. We have a national crisis of homelessness and we need to do something about it. So 
I don't know. I think that's I think that's going to be interesting to see how it develops over the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the biggest threat to all of this forward motion and the possibility of improvements and expansion of coverage is the defunding that's been going on for the last seven years under the Choice and now the Mission Acts. And, uh, you know, Secretary, uh, VA Secretary McDonough's latest figures are, are pretty daunting. You know, you've got a, a HA direct care budget of about $100 billion a year. 33% of that is now being diverted to reimbursement of private hospital chains, private medical practices, private clinics, uh, all of the private healthcare industry interests that are feeding at the trough. So a, a third of the budget now is, is, is the VA is essentially functioning as a Medicare-style reimbursement of outsources. And uh, this privatization trend is accelerating. Uh, McDonough has admitted that it's now on track to consume 50% of the VA budget. So where does that leave that, you know, the 9 million patients and their families, uh, you know, who, who depend on that network of 1,200 medical centers and clinics if half the money allocated for direct care is being diverted to unnecessary outside referrals? to providers skill and experience treating veterans. You provided so, the correct um, process, you know, which was uh, how this thing was sold to the VSOs and to many veterans is a form of choice. And uh, it's not sustainable. McDonough has admitted that, but he regards the situation as uh, healthy competition. Well, I'm a Kaiser member in California. Uh, Kaiser's got a similar number of patients, uh, 9, 10 million is the VA. Kaiser doesn't tell me, hey, Steve, you know, if you've got a, a medical problem, anytime you want, just go to Sutter, uh, go to UCSF, go to Stanford, uh, any one of our competitors. And, you know, you, you can be treated there. You can self-refer it. Just, you know, just send the bill to us. That's not how it works. You can't go out of network without penalties. Uh, so, you know, veterans have been told, VA patients, and, and many get this and know that it doesn't add up, that you could have your cake and you can eat it too. Well, you can't because they're cannibalizing the system. They're defunding it and they're setting it up for the kind of dismantling uh, and downsizing the Biden administration itself proposed a few months ago. Fortunately, that particular uh, uh, restructuring scheme was torpedoed as a result of grassroots organizing by the patients and their caregivers and some of the VSOs and, uh, you know, key senators uh, said, no, we're not going to have an air commission to uh, implement this plan, but they're going to find other ways to implement the plan piecemeal because they, unless they stop the outsourcing and McDonough so far has failed to do that. And he has two more years left on his watch, um, but he is on the same trajectory as uh, uh, the uh, Trump and Obama administration, VA secretaries before him. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's really important for people to understand is that it's not just the Republicans that privatization bandwagon. I mean, it's really the corporate Democrats who are being, you know, one of the, the points that our, our colleague Jasper Craven makes is that the Senate and, and House Veterans Affairs Committee used to be try to backwaters because nobody would would give them money. You know, nobody would give them donations because there was 
you know, they they weren't um, in the service of private interests. And now uh, there's huge amount of lobbyists and huge amount of money going in to the coffers of, um, you know, of these uh, senators and congressmen who, who Congress people, excuse me, who are really, you know, going along with the privatization agenda. I mean, Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida is a huge recipient of hospital industry money. Um, you know, they, they, these, these, the, the Dems are probably not getting money from the Koch brothers, but they're getting money from the pharmaceutical industry that hates the fact that the VA negotiates prescription drug prices. They're getting money from the hospital industry the medical equipment industry that wants a cut, you know, of, of, of this huge pot of gold, a hundred billion dollar pot of gold. And we really need to put pressure on the Dems. We really need to put pressure on the Biden administration because they have pursued Trump era policies. Um, and, um, they have two years, you know, the two years guaranteed, right. Where they can reverse these often by rulemaking. Right. I mean, they can the, the secretary of the VA can reverse the privatization and outsourcing through this Mission Act, through rulemaking and changing access standards that Trump's VA secretary will be um, engineered. And he will not. He says he won't do it. He could reverse this human resources. They, they Trump uh, it, it, it uh, initiated a human resources modernization plan that has essentially crippled VA hiring and that McDonough is pursuing. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways that without any legislation whatsoever, the secretary can use his authority um, to, to reverse outsourcing. And I think veterans groups and veterans and their families, you know, it's not just the vet, right? I mean, the vet has- He could also fire Trump's favorite uh, medical information processing firm, Cerner, which, you know, got a $15 no-bid contract, which, you know, has screwed up uh, VA medical record keeping in just about every place that it has been introduced. They've now paused the rollout. But this is another contractor that uh, should not have gotten that contract. Actually, the work probably could have been done better in-house. Uh, but it's a huge albatross around the neck of the current VA administration, again, inherited from Trump, but they're going to have to deal with it. Just staying the course is not in the best interest of veterans or their families. It, it, it reminds me of, uh, our discussion about abortion access in understanding that Biden and the Biden administration can take much bigger strides than it is and it's choosing not to um so and and keeping in mind of course that the with the the vha rule about them not being able to compete properly in terms of market-based salaries for hiring um that it just it, we're, we're seeing this, you mentioned about an albatross around the VA's neck, you know, that we're, um, from our last conversation, Suzanne, from, uh, sometime in 20, uh, 2019, I think that, you know, it was certainly smaller, but we're starting, you know, the, the, the monster's fins are really out there now. We're really starting to see the snowball gather speed and, and, um, 
you know, what will the VA look like in 20 or 25 years? You know, and, and that's not really, you know, long-term planning at all. And yet we, we, we still need it. I, there's been some numbers running around in the news recently about that they anticipate the population of veterans to drop like precipitously, like by a third within a, within a, a, a shorter amount of time. And I can see it already being used as fodder to say, yep, we're, 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 we're just wasting. It's a waste of money. It's, it's. And of course, you know, let, let guys choose what they want to, but, but no one has this, this kind of conversation, understanding the, uh, continuity of care that the VA provides and that, the, that they do provide something that other doctors cannot, it's not a, it's, it's not just some, um, axiom that we came up with just to do that. They actually do provide that. The, and especially like you guys are talking about that, the kind of conditions that veterans have frequently and how those conditions work with one another. Well, you know, one of the things that folks don't understand about healthcare is you can have a declining patient population and still have an increase in need because, you know, veterans have very complex, they have multiple issues. I mean, the average over 65-year-old who goes you know, on Medicare has three to five presenting problems. The average Vietnam vet has nine to 12. So, you know, and, and the folks who, I mean, you know, veterans have more muscular skeletal problems. I mean, these, this doesn't even depend on combat. I mean, you don't have to go sure. to combat, right? Um, they have more um, toxic exposures. They, again, combat, yes, but there's other toxic exposures. They have more mental health problems. They have more suicide risks. They have more PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. So they come in as very complex patients and then they get more complex as they age because added on to those problems is the the normal pro you know, the normal health conditions of aging. Um, they have more diabetes, they have more hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> Who can have Fewer vets, but that doesn't mean, you know, but if, if but fewer vets have more problems, they still have a lot of yeah. it. Yeah. And you're, and if you're talking, you have these facilities and you have these models of care that have been developed at the taxpayer. We have to think about this as an investment, right? We have invested in this infrastructure for 70 years and it's, it's a, an amazing return on investment that tragically nobody knows how much money they made, you know, how much, how much rewards they have reaped. Um, and, and many of these clinical innovations benefit us all. I mean, VA teaches 70% of American physicians in training. It teaches 50% of psychologists. You know, it does amazing research, et cetera, et cetera, that benefits all Americans. Every vet that gets treated in the VA, you know, there's a ripple effect. I mean, I have a friend who's, whose brother was a Vietnam vet, and she said to me, if the VA weren't there, I would have never been able to become like a professor in this, you know, prestigious university because I would have been dealing with, he would have been homeless. He would have been, I would have, you know, he would have had all these mental problems that, that she as his sister would have had to deal with. So, you know, we're not assessing, I think, and the VA certainly doesn't promote this enough, you know, the amazing um, ripple effect that this system 
produces a benefit for the good of Americans. And I think that we need to expand the system. I personally think we need to go on the, you know, the offensive. I mean, I work, I helped found a group called the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute and work for it now. And we firmly believe that we have to have a positive, not just a defensive vision of both veterans and also, um, you know, what the, the Department of Veterans Affairs can do, not only for veterans, but their families and their communities and all Americans. And, you know, one of the things that, that I'd like to also say is that the media plays such a pernicious role in all this. I mean, you know, the media focuses on the vets from January 6th, you know, and and the mass shooters and so forth and so on. It never focuses on, you know, where are you guys when they need sources? Where are the folks in common defense? Veterans for Peace. There are all kinds of candidates for local office. Steve can speak to this, you know, who are progressive vets. They never make it into the mainstream media. And so we have this very skewed view of American veterans as kind of, you know, white supremacists, blah, blah, blah. And obviously there are some. I mean, there are mass shooters. There are white supremacists. But there's a whole spectrum of political opinion in veterans that never make it into the media because the media is so fundamentally conservative itself. Well, the... Um... In, in in dealing with, you know, the back and forth for towards the movement of privatization, you know, that what is it, uh, two thirds of the federal workforce are are veterans. Um, a huge proportion of of the people that work work at the VA. And so, you know, that that, you know, even for people that aren't actively seeking out the care, there are that <clears throat> or that are involved in providing it. And certainly can speak can speak to how well it does, how it helps the people that they see, and how that those veterans are trying to continue their own work of service. Because I'm, I'm sure, I mean, working at the VA is not a, it's uh, it's not an easy job. Um, the other major federal employer of, uh, of veterans, you know, is the Postal Service, and there's the, a parallel from uh, now Biden administration. Uh, push for privatization. Um, there's a, more than a hundred thousand veterans, uh, as a result of hiring preferences, become members of the various postal unions. They, like their counterparts uh, in the VA unions, are on the front lines of a major anti-privatization uh, struggle to try to prevent a, a Trump appointee, Louis DeJoy. Uh, who's the postmaster general still under Biden. They haven't gotten rid of him yet. Uh, and he has a postal service uh, restructuring plan that would uh, severely uh, undermine uh, the mail delivery, uh, cut tens of thousands of jobs. And uh, it's incremental privatization that's not in the interest of the, the public that needs its mail ballots uh, delivered Probably that it's not in the interest of the communities that are served by rural post offices. It's not in the interest of the uh, of many people of color, including veterans, uh, who've been able to good, get good, steady, long-term employment uh, as postal workers, benefits, uh, health care coverage, chance of a decent pension. So um, people want to help veterans at this point. 
uh, one of the major things they can do is get behind these two parallel anti-privatization struggles to try to stop the outsourcing and dismantling of the veterans healthcare system and <clears throat> the U.S. mail system, another form of public provision that benefits uh, hundreds of millions of us and uh, will not be replaced for the better by uh, private delivery companies. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the, the heartening things for us has been the struggle against the air commission and the closures of VA hospitals and the unions that have like American Federation of Government Employees, National Nurses United, and unions and veterans groups all over the country that have really that really attacked that proposal. And that was a very big victory. I mean, it, it, you know, these people are hydra-headed, I, I guess, or, you know, they never, they never disappear. Um, but, you know, we can really have a big effect when veterans work together with you know, unions and, and, and civic groups and so forth. And um, I'm very proud of the role that Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute played. And, and we worked a lot with AFGE and um, it, it, you know, it's, it's very promising, I think. Um, And, you know, I think that it's just very important for veterans to understand that you cannot have, you, you, cannot maintain the integrity of the Veterans Healthcare Administration, the, the Veterans Healthcare System, if you're not using it, right? If, I mean, the, the taxpayer is not going to pay $100 billion a year for, for buildings and personnel that nobody goes to. And so veterans, I think, need to really speak with each other and encourage each other to go to the VHA. I mean, I, I, I did a radio show recently with a woman who was a vet and she doesn't use the VA healthcare system. She said, because, you know, I don't want to take money from people who need it more than me. And I said, wait a minute, the VA budget, and a lot of people believe this, a lot of people believe this, the VA budget depends on prior utilization. You know, they look at how many people used it last year and the year before, and then they, you know, add some, some, some incremental, you know, uh, you know, they figure out how many people might be using it. And that's how they develop the budget. So if you don't use the VA, you're, you're actually taking it away. You know, you're not, you're not, it, it's not, it's not like um, they, they, you know, Hagen and Henry decide which one of them is going to use the VA and that's how they make the budget. And so there's so many misconceptions about, you know, what the VA is about. I mean, one of the other things is, oh, you know, they just want to give you pills. I can't tell you how many bets I've heard that from. They just want to give you pills. Actually, no, they don't. I mean, obviously they'll give you pills if you need it. Hagen, maybe you can speak to this, but, you know, um, but but they have talk therapy. They have meditation. I learned how to meditate with a bunch of Vietnam vets at the VA. You know, I went, I went to a course and it got to be, where's Suzanne? How come you weren't here last week? You know, it was just great. And they have acupuncture. They have salsa dancing. They have cooking classes. I mean, you know, uh, literally there's a pro there was a program in San Diego to prevent homelessness in 
in Iraq and Afghanistan vets, and they taught them salsa dancing to, to, about, to teach about socialization, you know. Um, I don't think Sutter does salsa dancing, you know, um, and or Providence in, in Oregon. Um, it's really a remarkable system. And I think vets should do more talking to vets about, you know, get help, go to the VA, right? Um, as opposed to, oh, no, no, you know, they just want to give you pills and or they make you want to talk and, and you know, just go online and, and chat with your buddies online. I mean, you're, it's good to chat with your buddies online, but unless they're, your buddies are all psychologists, you know, if you have PTSD, might not be so helpful. Uh, there can be a lot of fear that comes with, with trying to pursue uh, healing in, in whatever form it happens to be. And hopefully once those, those guys who haven't, haven't tried, or maybe they had an experience or a few experiences at the VA that did not, right. you know, it didn't, it didn't work out for them. And I, you know, I hope they go back. I hope they try again. Um, yeah, no, I, I can't imagine the medical debt that I would be in if I did not have access to the VA. It absolutely has, has kept me in much better health than I would be under any other kind of HMO system. I can't even imagine. Um, before we, we close up, I wanted to um, touch on something that we had uh, talked about before, uh, we, before we had started. Um, that a couple of days ago, uh, we released an episode on abortion access and reproductive freedom, uh, in the military. But one aspect that I, I, I actually made some notes about it, but I didn't, didn't get to share it on the, what the, how the VA's policies actually deal with those kind of things. And that the VA does provide a bit of a stopgap as far as for veterans needing that kind of care. Um, would you guys please share with us about that? Sure. So in given these, the uh, Supreme Court decision and these draconian um, bans on abortion in, very, in various states, the VA secretary announced a, a rule that the VA would provide abortions in cases of rape, in, incest, or the health, you know, the, life, the danger to the life of the mother. And um, that is very narrow, but it's a very move in a, in a very good move in the right direction. And there have been legal opinions, notably from um, the um, Vet Voice Foundation, um, where they looked at and said that they could expand these rights to provide abortions for, you know, broader reasons. And I think it's really important to understand that women veterans have a, a very, a, a lot of uh, serious problems with risk of, for pregnancy. They have more hypertension. They have more cardiac problems. Burn pit exposure creates uh, a lot of risks and they get, you know, certainly a uh, risk for cancer. And you don't want a woman veteran to be facing the choice of, of you know, having to have a baby and then, you know, dying because they couldn't get cancer treatment, et cetera. Um, and so I think that the VA should be pushed to broaden access to abortions in um, these particular states where where you're not allowed to um, have them. And also, 
I personally think that you could argue that the VA could expand its fourth mission to bring in women who are facing a medical emergency if they've, for example, had a miscarriage and doctors refuse to give them appropriate care following a miscarriage because they're afraid, you know, that this will be considered to be, you know, related to abortions or whatever. So this is, I mean, the McDonough, um, you know, I, I applaud his his um, move to expand it in this narrow range. I think they have to be pushed to expand it even further and also to expand their fourth mission because, you know, for women in these states, I mean, women who wanted to have babies and had a miscarriage and then they can't get appropriate follow-up care and their lives are put at risk and their reproductive futures are put at risk. This is just crazy. Or women who have cancer, you know, and they have to choose between chemotherapy I mean, they can't get an abortion, you know. Um, so the VA, I think, is is playing is is tiptoeing in to playing a um, an important role, and it should be encouraged to play an even bigger role. Yeah, there's also also the um, uh, getting care to uh, trans folks and non-binary folks as well. Um, but yeah, it it it's. Um, It's 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 sad to me that those are the kind of things that we have to find for 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 you know positive stuff. But it is but it is it is a step in the right direction, and it's a very a very I think a very powerful one. Um, I uh, uh, I think uh, I think that's probably a good spot for us to wrap it up for today. Um, is there any any other topics or anything you guys want to want to end on? Um, well. Um... Uh, listeners who are interested in ordering a copy of our veterans um, can do so through uh, your favorite uh, local unionized bookstore up there in Portland, Powell's. Uh, you can order it online. Don't go to Amazon. That uh, uh, famously hypocritical uh, example of performative patriotism in the, in the corporate America. Um, you can also order the book uh, directly from the publisher, Duke University Press, uh, also recently unionized by my union, the, the CWA News Guild. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, ourvetsbook.com, and there's a, an ordering button there that goes back to, the, uh, to Duke. So uh, we hope people check out the book and uh, let other people know about it because um, you know, it, it, it took some lobbying to find a publisher to tell this story, and uh, it'll be much harder next time if uh, we don't uh, reach uh, certain uh, sales target figures. And it's not for our benefit, believe me. We're not uh, John Grisham making big money off a book about veterans. It's, it's for the cause. It's for the movement. It's for the campaigns. And uh, uh, hopefully we're making a contribution to all of them writing this. And, and I also wanted to, to um, suggest that if people are interested in following these veterans' health issues and benefits issues, they should check out the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute, which is veteranspolicy.org, um, and, and subscribe to the newsletter or just check out the website because we, we're constantly tracking this stuff. I, I think we're 
pretty much one of the only groups that is really kind of on this 24-7, you know, and I really um, salute my colleagues there and Jasper Craven, who who is a, one of the co-authors, is works with, with me at VHPI as well. I've, I've, I've found that site to be a, uh, a wonderful resource. Um, right. yeah, no, it, it, it is. And, 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 you know, I so thankful that, you know, even, even if, you know, you were the only person or VHPI or the only people really, you know, minding the store, as far as these issues go, thank goodness that it's there, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and, and, uh, I know we, we, uh, you know, last time you and I talked, Suzanne, it was, you know, a wonderful discussion, to, um, and I, I feel like once again, you know, with alongside Wounds of War that, you know, you guys have broken ground on stuff that people are going to kind of slap their foreheads and like, how did I not know about this? How did I not see this? And I hope that lots of people do. I hope that they do. And, and, and you know, there's so much that I learned that was in the, in the book about these issues. So thank you, uh, Steve and Suzanne for, uh, for joining us. Um, I hope everybody does pick up, try to pick up a, a copy of our veterans. I'll make sure that I have a, a good link for that in our show notes, go back to your guys' website and to, uh, to our, uh, good, good local, local bookseller, uh, <laughs> make people go to, who live in the East coast have to go buy it from Powell's that, 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 that will be our Portland revenge. And we'll see you in Portland in March, hopefully. Yes. Yes. That would, that would be great. Please, please keep us uh, apprised of that. And thank you listeners for, uh, joining us today and we will see you next time. Take care. Money is tight these days for everyone. Penny pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that. And for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer, like these fine folks. Fahim Shirazi. James O'Barr, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Rick Coffey, Scott Spaulding, Spooky Tooth, and the Status Quo Podcast. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash fortress on a hill or please check out our store on spreadshirt for some great fortress merch we're on twitter and facebook.com at fortress on a hill you can find our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time I will not detain